It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, Conversations with host Serena Catania. Sounds like you are a sound designer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, this is going to be fun. Uh, This is... (laughs) This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. I just love my job on days like today when I can talk to literal geniuses like Richard Devine. He is an electronic artist, a sound designer. He specializes in musical composition, mnemonics, field recording, sound effects, loop libraries, content creation, instrument patch design, specialized sound design for TV, film, web media, and virtual reality. <gasps> okay. And literally, I promise you, he does do all of that. And this is audio only, and I'm a little bit sad because if you could see his studio, it it looks like the set of a high-budget sci-fi movie. Welcome, Richard. We are going to be talking about your life, your work, your sold-out-I'm-so-mad next release (laughs) final. It's not even out yet, and it's already sold out. So hi, Richard. Welcome to OWC Radio. Oh, well, thank you for having me, guys. There's so much to talk about. Why don't you start by telling people in your words what you're currently doing and and why you're doing it? Um, well, uh, I guess it's a, I, I'm a person that wears many hats, I guess. And you kind of covered a little bit of that in the introduction. Um, okay, everybody. Did you hear that? He said a little <laughs> bit of that. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I need five hours to interview this man. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I, there's so much stuff that I do, um, whether that's um, working as an independent electronic artist, composer, and sound designer, um, and then also the sound design job entails quite a bit. That goes into many different fields, um, some of which you had mentioned just in the intro. But yes, I've... Uh, been working as a professional sound designer for about 25 years now as a, f- a freelance uh, content creation person, um, developing content not only for um, multiple different environments. I've done stuff from video games to virtual reality to old cars, to electric car. Um, I did my first electric car with Jaguar, their iPace electric vehicle. Uh, I was responsible for designing all of the sounds of that car mix, including the EV engine sounds of the sound of the engine that you hear, or it's a make-believe engine because it actually didn't make any sound. That was the reason why they hired me to create the sound of of an electrical engine. Um, But yeah, so I've done all kinds of stuff. Yeah, really wild stuff, stuff that I never would have imagined myself doing if you had asked me, you know, 15 years ago, hey, you're going to be doing this. Um, I would have never believed you. <laughs> um, you know, people call me the Energizer Bunny, but you're running circles around me. I thank Derek at OWC for introducing me to you. And mm-hmm. when I started researching you and started listening to your music, I was immediately hooked. And actually, our producer, Debbie, when I told her that you do a lot of electronic music, she goes, mm, well, that's not really my thing. And then she texted me back and she said, OK, <laughs> I'm hooked. <laughs> and S- Simona is in Lithuania, and she's become a fan, too. So, uh, oh, the, cool. The, yeah, this is awesome. Really the cool. numbers are growing on our staff. Anyway, nice. um, I interrupted you. I'm just very excited about what you're doing. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, my uh, my, my job, like I said, goes many different directions. Uh, sound designer, 
user interaction designer. I do a lot of user interactive sounds for different environments, whether that's software or hardware environments um, and devices that can be, you know, some sort of device, anything from like an iPad to a, a tablet. I did the Barnes and Noble tablets, did all the UI sounds for that. So as an example, um, or it could be music. I do a lot of um, uh, music as well for TV commercials and films and video games. The most recent video game I worked on was for um, CD Projekt Red um, for mm -hmm. Cyberpunk 2077. That game's going to be coming out. It's a pretty big anticipated game, probably one of the most anticipated games to come out this year. Um, but that uh, I worked pretty heavily on the music soundtrack, lots of sound effects, tons of custom patches for uh, the game, I collaborated with them, uh, along with um, many other artists to create the soundtrack for that video game. That was an extremely fun project to work on. For, before that, I, I created a ambisonic sound effects library for Rode microphones. They're a, a company out of um, Australia that make very high quality microphones for ENG, broadcast production, film. So what I did with them is they have a, a new ambisonic microphone called the NTSF1, which is a full 360-degree ambisonic B-format multi-capsule mic that I used to create, I think it was around 55 to 60 sound effects that's in a sound library that you can down, you can actually down all the sounds for free uh, from their website. And uh, that was a really fun project because I was kind of all over the country and the different remote locations and capturing um, sounds and, and uh, or these 360 degree, um, you know, sonic pictures as I called them, or ambisonic sounds for that library. So that was a really, really fun project to work on. 360 sound is really interesting. The technology behind it is fascinating, but also as a listener of the product that you, that you guys create with those microphones, it's changed our world. It's really wonderful. It's very immersive. I love it. Yeah, it really has. My first introduction to the world of ambisonics was working with Google. I worked with them in 2016. They hired me to work to create uh, their first sort of step into the ambisonic world was a, a platform called Daydream. And my responsibilities for that as their main sound designer is it was creating all the uh, interactive ambisonic environments and UI sounds for Daydream which consisted of sort of like this cave and outside sort of world that you explore that was like a forest with a, a babbling brook and the waterfall and these trees and birds and things. So I did all of the soundscapes for that environment. And then as, uh, there were quite a few uh, other VR apps within that environment I designed all the sounds for. And then we did another cool project with Google, Google Earth VR for the HTC Vive. So I collaborated with their team in Mountain View and worked on creating and capturing all the ambiences, environmental ambiences for, for that project, which was really crazy because I did, you know, I think it was well over a hundred different recordings of Ambisonic going to deserts, going to forests, going to fields, going to kind of any sort of kind of terrain that you would encounter on planet earth. I tried to create a general Ambisonic library for so if you were to cruise around the Grand Canyon, so to speak, or if you were just walking through a field in Utah, or if you were in a, in a jungle in the Amazon, or just if you could, any kind of place that you would explore on the planet, uh, I was to, my job was to kind of create that sort of um, ambisonic uh, 360 degree 
audio sort of um, environment that you would explore. So that was a really, really fun project. Lots of work. Yeah, lots of work for sure. I love that, though. I, I shot in the Amazon and I remember standing in the middle of the jungle one day. We were about ready to get back on the river. But I just stood there for a minute and I listened to all of the sounds. And it, it was one of those moments in life, that and another time when I was chasing lightning for National Geographic and I looked up and there was this huge anvil above us and the absence of sound. So a lot yeah. of us who make films talk about, you can make a film that has images that aren't quite great, but if you've got bad sound, forget it. If you have yeah. good sound, you have everything you need to create that experience. You just must love what you do. Oh my gosh, it's uh, it's become a it was a pa a hobby that turned it well. It's always a passion, but it was just I always thought that I'd be doing <laughs> sound is like sort of a side job, just as a passion side thing. But that never really worked out. <laughs> it kind of took over. But yeah, I just absolutely love what I do. You know, it's exactly what you said. You know, you can almost you could you could be in a completely dark room and play like these sounds and sound effects that could tell almost like a story. You could completely tell a whole narrative story just with sound if you had to. And it's, um, it's just such a powerful uh, medium for expressing and, and, you know, just uh, for storytelling, for, for, you know, just expressing emotions or a certain feeling or articulating an idea or, or a language or communication. It's such a powerful medium. And that's, to me, what's so fascinating about it is it doesn't matter what continent you're on or it's the universal language. Music, to me, music and sound is like the universal language that everyone can understand. Absolutely. Especially now in the time of quarantine and COVID and a lot of people are feeling a little bit uncertain and some of them are having, they're feeling a little down and I've been telling everybody, just put some music on, put some music on and let it take you wherever it's going to take you. And I'm actually going to recommend to people that they get your music because you can just take a voyage to a great place listening to your stuff. Uh, it's very, it's, it can be energizing. It can be soothing. Your percussion's awesome. Oh, thank you. Richard, let's go back. Let's go back to when you were a kid. When did all this start? When did you know that you wanted to do this? And how did you first get involved with music and sound? Yeah, well, let's see here. My first earliest introduction to sound was um, taking piano lessons. Uh, it was not by my choice, but from my mother's. <laughs> and at the time, I really didn't appreciate it because I was just an eight-year-old who just wanted to do what eight-year-olds do, play in the creek, ride the bike, hang out with the friends in the neighborhood and do all those fun sort of things. And, you know, my mom was like, no, I want you to be more well-rounded. I want you to take piano lessons. And so I went through many piano teachers in the beginning. And then I think it was like my last piano teacher. I think it was from Ukraine. He's from like somewhere in Eastern Europe. Very cool guy. Who, who had asked me, you know, well, I was playing a lot of recitals at the time. So it was, you know, learning how to play these pieces of music and then perform them with other students. And so in the beginning, I really didn't have that much interest. It was kind of like making my mom happy and playing these pieces perfectly. And then my last piano teacher was like, hey, you know, you shouldn't be playing this, this music because you, your mom is making you or you know, you're having to play these pieces perfectly with the perfect technique. And the reason, the whole reason why you get into making music or getting into playing an instrument is because you get enjoyment out of it and it gives something back to you. And, 
you know, as an eight-year-old at the time, I was like, you know, I've never really thought of it that way. Do all these other things that I <laughs> I love enjoying. And, and he's like, well, is there any music that you like? And it just kind of, you know, I was just sitting, standing there thinking, wow, I've never really been asked what music I like. I've always just had to play stuff, you know, that you've given me. And he's like, well, why don't we explore music you like first? And then if you find stuff that you like, then we should play the stuff that you enjoy playing. It shouldn't be the other way around. And that really kind of opened the door. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I, I, well, and so he played me all these different types of music, all these different composers I'd never heard of before. And then I started to pick up on things that I actually started. I was like, I'd actually like to learn how to play that piece of music. That's this really beautiful or this one part's really interesting. Or, um, so I started to kind of dig in and pick into things um, from that point on and, and to get, you know, to have more of a deeper interest in music. And then as I, went from that I got I started to get into skateboarding and me and my brother were big uh to the whole skateboarding scene skateboard culture the art the music which revolved a lot around um a lot of early hip-hop and thrash metal bands from I want to say the early 90s late 80s so we started to get into a lot of the DIY punk stuff and so I was kind of being influenced by a lot of that and classical music I know it's a lot of different things so I had a really open palette and I was kind of like open and ready for anything to influence and, uh, me as a, as, a, as a young person. So I was like this sponge just absorbing all these new music um, scenes and styles and genres of music at the time. Um, and uh, so it was, a, it was a really interesting period for me. One quick question, though, because I'm always very curious. When you were eight, what was the music? That, do you remember some of the music that you picked that you liked? Well, some of the first music I was introduced to was classical music. So I, I have to, the, the first music that actually I was really drawn to was probably Bach, Kowalowski, Haydn, mm -hmm. um, Schmidt. And I remember um, hearing the music of Eric Satie for the first time. And mm -hmm. I was just really, really blown away by his, his compositions. They were um, very melancholy, very different. Um, not overly complex, but more emotionally, I don't know how to, there was just something about his music that spoke to me. Even at such a young age, it was just very, the mel just the melodies were so different than all the other composers that I was studying at that time. And I was just, just it always it questioned, why was he so different? Why was he so different than all the other composers, you know? And, um, it made me re realize that I really wanted to find more music where these people went in, in a direction that wasn't, you know, the typical direction of what everybody else was doing at the time. And that had, has always been sort of like that mm -hmm. theme that I've always followed with other people's art. It's always like these artists have kind of went into their own little world and did their own little thing. And, it's, and that's what makes them special, you know? Absolutely. And I knew whatever kind of music that I wanted to do I wanted to kind of go on my own path in that sort of same way, follow that sort of same trajectory and, and sort of develop my own style and try to create my own space, um, so to speak. So I was really drawn to those, those artists early on that were doing that sort of thing at that time. I love that creative assertiveness. I love it. The best artists I've, I've spoken to are the ones that can isolate themselves and just let their own mind and heart speak to them. And then they start creating these amazing things. I think it's great to be inspired by other people, but not necessarily to copy them. And you are one of a kind. The other comment I wanted to make was that I, I'm not surprised that you're athletic because 
you just never stop. The energy level that you had when you were skateboarding, um, I'm sure you took all of that into your creations, right? Oh, yeah. We, me and my brother were extremely active. I mean, we're still very active now. I'm, um, you know, I'm 40, 44 years old, but now I'm doing different activities. I don't skate as much, although I did go skateboarding last Wednesday with my kids. I took them to the park and we, we've been, we go skateboarding on every Wednesday. Um, I take them to the skate park and then we were very active as far as like going out hiking a lot. We were um, camping in, Nor- in the North Carolina mountains last, last weekend. So we did a lot of hiking up, up by waterfalls and stuff. We do a lot of kayaking. So we're definitely outdoorsy sort of very active people, even in, in our forties, me and my wife. So we're still doing things. And yeah, I think that helps. I think that's good for the creative mind to get outside, get fresh air, kind of replenish the brain, you know, don't be Absolutely. stuck all the time in your chair working because it can kind of be, you can get to get to these points where it's stagnant. So it's good to just kind of get your blood flowing and get out and start walking, get into nature. I, at least for me, it, it, right. I, I feel that that's really important to kind of balance out the work, working on a screen. Because I do spend a lot of screen time working on, on computers during the day. So it's nice to kind of offset that um, with some organic nature. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. We need that, that emotional release too that we get when we're outside. I spend mm-hmm. a lot of time right now during the quarantine in front of screens too. And I don't necessarily like doing it as much as I'm doing now, but I find that I just have to get out and go for a walk mm-hmm. and, and watch exactly. the hummingbirds for a minute or climb a hill or do something that reminds yes. me that we are a small part of a much bigger universe right? And then you can exactly. bring that all back and feel really creative. So, okay, so the skateboarding era, and then what happened after that? Where did you go from there? From skateboarding, I started to, like I said, discover some more more interesting music, like DIY punk music and hip hop. And then from that, I started to kind of get into more of the fusion of those two styles, which was industrial music. Mm-hmm. Um, once I discovered that, I was really um, blown away because the industrial music was taking a lot of like the synthetic and sampled sounds of hip hop, but sort of with the raw, aggressive, interesting edge of punk. Um, so this new movement of industrial music that I was really getting to a lot of these bands from Canada, like Skinny Puppy, SBK, and Coil from England. There was a lot of interesting stuff happening, utilizing technology in a different way utilizing computers it was first time i I was uh listening to music that was designed and sequenced by computers at that time and i uh was um starting to getting into high school i was uh djing a lot i was buying a lot of records at this time i would say 15 16 i started collecting a lot of records and djing a lot of early back then parties that would be later rave parties in the, the the atlanta rave scene Back in, I want to say the 92, 91, it was early, early years there. Um, And so I amassed a pretty large collection of records, which I still have to this day. We have got probably about close to 5,000, probably 5,500 records here. Um, Oh my gosh. And yeah, I became an, I just became a collector of music. I was just, um, you know, complete music nerd. I still am to this day you know, collecting anything that I could that was obscure, interesting, you know, off the beaten path, you know, mostly centered around electronic music, noise, industrial, ambient, you name it, just there's so many hundreds of genres of different styles you could go in. But, you know, I just, 
wanted to get my hands on whatever I could get to play these really cool DJ sets. And then, you know, I started to get really, really interested in the process. I was like, how are these people making some of these sounds and these words? And at that point, I made a decision, you know what, I'm going to start building my own studio. I think this is around 15, when I was 15 years old, I wanted to build my own studio. Um, this is when I was living at my parents' house. So I started buying stuff. And um, there were a lot of secondhand pawn shops near my house. So um, I would basically just go to these pawn shops and uh, secondhand stores and buy used old uh, vintage synthesizers and drum machines, you know, whatever would show up. Um, I would pick them up and buy them. And I would get these things. I bought some of these things for next to nothing. They were you know, literally less than a couple hundred dollars and they might've been beat up, but they were, I didn't know that a lot of these machines would become priceless, valuable collectibles many, many years down the line. Um, because at that time when I was buying stuff, no one wanted analog drum machines and synths. They were kind of um, frowned upon because everyone was moving to digital. They wanted more realistic sounds. Mm -hmm. So they were getting sort of the studios here in Atlanta were kind of like throwing away these older classic, Roland Jupiters and Juno keyboards and oh stuff God. like that. So I got all of these things for really cheap. And I remember even I bought my 808 drum machine. I think it was like two to 300 bucks from a guy here. You know, now they sell for four to $5,000 um, as an, uh, one example. But uh, there was, you know, I've got, so, I, I was able to amass such a large collection of vintage synthesizers that I learned on. They were basic. I looked at these things as like a book or some education manual. Mm -hmm. It's like, how, what, what's, what will this synthesizer tell me about how to shape sound or teach me things? So I would record hours and hours of me fiddling around with some of these synths onto these two hour DAT tapes. <laughs> and those of you who may not know what a DAT tape is, a digital audio tape. Um, it is what we had to, what we used to have to record to back in the '90s before there was, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> before there was like CDs and mini yeah. discs, and yeah. now everyone's just. <laughs> I have a pile oh, you still of them. And, oh my gosh, <laughs> I have. I kept all my old decks from, but I was on the filmmaking side. But I kept, I kept most of the analog equipment that I used to use, just because. I wanted to keep it, you know, it, uh, there's a lot mm -hmm. of, there's a lot of, mem and also the sounds are different. The sounds are so different. Yeah. I'm not knocking digital. I love digital, but I also love that everybody's kind of coming full circle, going back into analog again. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I interrupted you, but yeah, I can understand. And if you ever have a garage sale, would you please invite me? I will definitely do that. <laughs> I'll pull money out of my life savings. And I, will, <laughs> I will buy some of your equipment, please. I love it. it. Yes. I will definitely let you know. I for sure will. But you're, yeah, a, the, you're a gearhead, too. I mean, I, I went to your Facebook page and you were all excited because you just got a Profit 5, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Dave Smith's stuff, and I've wanted a Profit 5 for oh, my whole life, um, and just never find one. I mean, the, the original Profit 5s are so expensive to get like a Rev 2.3 or any of the earlier models, and they're considered collector's items. And when Dave Smith decided to release that Profit 5, I was like, well, I've got to jump on board and join this and get on board with this because this is my chance to get a, a vintage synth that really, really influenced me. There were so many iconic, great records that I had listened to growing up that were that synth had played such a huge part. And um, just to have some piece of history that 
had a huge impact on me. And now that I have that instrument in my arsenal to make music with is just like a dream come true. It really is like a, it's just a spectacular, I think it's just a spectacular time to be alive and making electronic music right now. I feel like we're in a Renaissance period where a lot of these (laughs) old vintage iconic synthesizers that were, you know, unattainable back then, really hard to get so rare are now making a comeback and you know they're all surfacing again and now we're able to use them but with more of an updated modern set of uh io and way of interfacing with the way that we make music today it's uh, i think it's just brilliant it's just such an awesome time yeah i want to before we go i do want to talk to you about ai you're sitting in your studio what does it look like can you describe your your current setup and what it actually looks like because honestly I've worked on a lot of sci-fi movies and I wish I had known about your studio because we probably would have <laughs> shot a scene in your studio just describe <laughs> to us in your words what your studio looks like and what's in it I think it, the best way to approach is the way I, des- I designed it I designed the room with my father-in-law it's basically three rooms. There's there's a Studio B room and a Studio A room. I think the A mix, mixing and mastering room is the room that where people see most of the pictures and videos that I post. That's the main room that I work in. But there's actually a Studio B room that has a surround sound set up, a full Genelec surround system with also an HDC5 VR room. It's got a, uh, we've got, I think it's, um, it's an Alienware machine. I forget which one it is, but it's a pretty badass specked out machine that does VR stuff. We do some developmental stuff that I was working on with Google. It's got Unity running on it. So it's kind of like our VR uh, testing room, but also a playroom as well. So we listen to a lot of surround mixes and ampersonic stuff. And it's also a studio B room for editing um, and doing all sorts of other stuff as well. But the main room uh, that I think you're talking about is the room that everyone calls the spaceship. There you go. See, Um, I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone says it looks like, uh, you know, the control deck and like the Star Trek, you know, enterprise. Mm-hmm. where you have like the Sterling modular desk that's got three module bays that kind of, it's kind of angled so that you're sitting in the main position, but your chair's in the center. And then you're like surrounded by all these beautiful colors and speakers and lights, cables that are blinking. And um, yeah, I have the Philips Hue system in here at all these different stations. So I can change the color and tone and timbre brightness uh, to anything I want at just the touch of a button on my phone. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's like, uh, it is Star (laughs) Trek, but okay, I'm going to say it's Star Trek if you were dressing up the studio as though they're going to be featured on the Grammys. I mean, it's like, okay, it's it's not just Star Trek the way we see it in the movies. This is Star Trek all dressed up in the holidays, getting ready for the Grammys. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's a... I, I decided that way because my studio before this was very different. It was a very different room. It was um, it didn't have the space. The, um, the the room was a lot different. It was a lot smaller and it was completely isolated and soundproof to the max to the point to where it was so soundproof that I didn't want to work in it. It was almost like an unnatural room to be in because the acoustics were so canceled out. I felt like I was working in a in a box all day, like an enclosed like shoe box. And I felt very claustrophobic working in my older studio, which made it hard for me to think creatively. And I didn't realize I thought I'd spent so much time making sure the room acoustics were perfect in the old studio that everything was I didn't really think how that would psychologically affect me working creatively. Um, 
And I, I know a lot of other people who built studios that I talked to said, oh, that's just as important, if not more important than getting your acoustics right. Yes, you want to make sure your acoustics and your speakers are placed perfectly well. You have, you know, diffusion and um, absorption panels on the walls and kind of cancel out any of the, uh, you know, acoustic problems that you might have in the room. But most importantly, if you don't feel good working in your room, then you've, <laughs> you've defeated the whole purpose of why you've even made the room in the first place. So it's really important that you get you pay attention to the feeling of how creative you feel in that room, how, how that room, how comfortable you feel working in that room, how that room, that, the environment influences you and your work. That's really, really important. I realized from building my last studio that I knew when I built the new studio, I was like, you know, okay, I need to make sure that I address all the issues of, you know, all the acoustical problems, but I also need to make sure that the room aesthetically in the environment feels creative that I want to be working in the room and I feel inspired to work in the room um, because I'm working on creative things. I'm, you know, uh, making content creation for, uh, you know, other companies. It's, it's, it's gotta be an inspiring room that, that gives me, you know, I just want to, it has to be room like, okay, I can't wait to go down and work in my studio today. It has to be, give me those feelings of excitement. Absolutely. And you know, that applies to everyone, even if you're in an office doing office work, even if you're in a cubicle, make, you know, uh, love yourself, take care of yourself, Mm -hmm. create a space that you can go to and and feel wonderful. And you're absolutely right. I do love all your blinking lights. (laughs) (laughs) So I would go into that room when I'm feeling festive. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's great because I have my lights set up also to be on timer. So during the day, the it mimics like the sunlight. So during the, the early hours of the morning, I work with very warm and bright white light colors. And then by nighttime, the colors start to change They're more like pinks, blues and oranges. It's almost if you were at dusk, like the sun was setting. And then at night, everything turns to like very dark blues and purples which a lot of people see me posting usually later in it, later on at night when I've kind of finished up my work for the day. I'll have like videos and they're more in like purple or like, like a purple or pink dark blue lighting because the lighting has actually changed. I try to set my lights to be an approximation of like the time of day, like what it would be like if I were just to work outside. So it really helps because and then by nighttime, when I'm about to put the kids to bed with dinner, the lights are almost like completely blue. It's almost mimicking like moonlight. So kind of like setting me psychologically, mentally to kind of like set, turn my brain down and calm it down for the day, if that makes sense. Well, and them too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For my kids as well. They're, they're a crazy bunch. Because I feel that all of that is really important. It helps you it just mentally, just for my mental space, like the, it just kind of prepares my mind to kind of like settle down, um, you know, kind of turn things off or finish things for the night. Or if you have any projects, kind of wrap them up. And, you know, I love that having a room that can be so expressive to kind of help me creatively and also in my mental state to kind of, you know, calm my uh, uh, emotional state down as well to kind of tell my brain to, you know, it's time to wrap things up. <laughs> yeah, all that energy. You got it. You got it. Every once in a while, you have to just go oh, take a deep breath. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I interrupted you. You were talking about your current, what you're using currently in your studio, because I know everybody wants to know about your equipment. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I use 
uh, a combination of all sorts of things. Um, it's a hybrid setup. I would say it's a hybrid digital setup. And hybrid, I mean, I use a lot of Albert classic analog vintage uh, gear, which compo is comprised of many analog compressors and EQs. Um, and the way that I like to do things, and this is how I recorded my last two records, um, which was a big change in how I used to record before. Before that, I was doing pretty much 99% of my stuff in what they say, it's in the box. And in the box means that you just do everything within the computer. Um, I had done four albums that were completely where every sound was generated or manipulated, or I would sample stuff from the outside, bring it into the computer, manipulate it, and incorporate it into a music composition. Um, with the last two records, it was, a, it was a bit of a process, and I wanted to shift gears, and, and it was more of an experiment to see if the sonic outcome would be better, and also I wanted to change the way my workflow was uh, previously, because I'd you know, done everything with a mouse, programmed on a timeline, um, using DAWs like Logic and Cubase and Ableton, I wanted to really shift my focus and move uh, to more of a hardware setup where I was working with my hands uh, and my ears and not looking at a screen and a timeline editor. Um, and mainly just because I wanted to do it more based on emotional, emotionally what I was feeling at that moment in time and being able to manipulate and set up a system where I could do everything by hand rather than kind of pre-programming things and kind of doing things in like sort of a loop fashion is how I was doing more of the construction building in the past. So this was this, these last two records were uh, vastly different in the way I approached things. And in the part of the experiment was just to see if I could break out of my old habits out of using the computer. So the, uh, the computer is an extremely powerful tool. It's, you know, probably the most powerful music, making tool there is out on the planet. I, I still agree to this day. It's, it's, I say that the MacBook Pro is like the Fender Strat of our generation. Um, but you could really do what you want. The world is you know, at your fingertips when you have as many possibilities with, that we have available now. I mean, I think about when I grew up building my studio, all of the things and principles of mixing, recording, and tracking, you can do all of that now on the computer. You don't need all this expensive hardware. You don't need all these outboard um, pieces of kit that you have to figure out how to link up and you know install and have the space to store them. You, you don't need any of that. You could just do it all on a laptop with a pair of headphones and a small uh, you know computer controller. And um, but there's some there's something nice about the way you're literally. It sounds to me like you're recording your performance. Um, exactly. Right. So you're moving away from the little box. You know, I, yes. I have friends mm -hmm. who tell me you can't have big ideas in small spaces. And, you know, that goes back to what we were talking about being in nature. It goes back to how you're building your studio. And and mm -hmm. it also, I think it, it uh, resonates with the fact that with what you're doing now, you really are, it's almost like you're improv and you're allowing the creativity to channel out of you into all of those, all of those, I don't even want to call them machines. In the beginning, if we go all the way back to the beginning, before I started making music with computers, I was making music with what they call hardware. So the hardware would consist of maybe a couple of vintage analog drum machines, a couple of synths that I would hook up via DINSYNC or CV and gate, which was uh, control voltage. Um, and so like when I was buying a lot of those early synths from those pawn shops back in the days, there was uh, all that was available to me at that time was a lot of these early analog 
poly and mono synthesizers that would use CV gate. And I would use a lot of these early sequencers that were based around that, that idea. So I started out buying a lot of early modular stuff too. I think one of the first modular synths I bought at that time was the ARP 2600. And I still actually have that synth here in my studio today. <laughs> when I bought one, I was 17. Nice. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, yeah, that synth by itself taught me so much. That was a, a, an insanely huge educational experience. It really kind of set the, the foundation of a lot of what I do today as far as sound shaping and sound design goes, because that synthesizer was bought by many universities as a teaching instrument to teach students about how to manipulate sound and teaching you the basic fundamentals of sound synthesis, whether it's um, cross-modulation of oscillators or what does a voltage control filter do, what does a voltage control amplifier do, um, you know, all these basic synthesis sound design terms, you, they were all separated into these different blocks on that synthesizer. So you could learn about each one of these um, principles just by pushing up a couple faders in different combinations. You could understand the functionality of each individual module, but then you could add more modules um, in signal chain to see what happens to the sound signal as you mix in more of the fader combination. So it was an extremely educational synthesizer for me to learn on, and that kind of set the groundwork for me going forward. Um, and so I bought more modular synthesizers or synthesizers that were set up in a similar fashion, just because when you work with modular synths, you basically have just, you have like, it's like a blank sheet of paper. You you can patch up any configuration you want. It's not a fixed environment. You basically can go in and you could do things that are wrong. <laughs> um, and Sometimes the great. mistakes turn out great, though, don't they? That's exactly. That's For me, it's all about happy accidents and, and spontaneous things that ha might happen on the way when trying to explore an idea or, uh, you know, compose a specific piece of music or, or you're approaching uh, sequencing the music in a certain way. Maybe something in the process goes wrong or... Um, something unexpectedly happens that you weren't anticipating and that situation happens so much with modular and that's what i love about it because sometimes that outcome or that accident will be something that is 10 times more interesting and more fun than what you even envisioned that, that you had within were even trying to go for to begin with so um i love that spot in the spontaneous um uh, of working in this this format and some of the the outcomes that it's given me it's just been um such a wild interesting way to make music and now um with the latest generation um so people see my studio now build all the blinking lights and stuff and the far you know the right hand side corner room is coming from what uh, my Eurorack modular system and what's interesting about that is that is like the newest incarnation or the latest generation of that technology now there are literally thousands of manufacturers making Eurorack modules and this this uh these modular systems that i'm using um has become quite popular now with electronic musicians and mm -hmm. um it, it, it make electronic music now and it's because there's so much fun it's like an endless source of inspiration um that will never ever really give you the same thing twice and that's like it's like the polar opposite uh of working in the computer where the computer will will save your project and everything with it exactly the way you recalled it so if you record a preset if you recorded or stored your 
your project you're working on, you, you could recall that session and every part of that session will be recalled and it's infinite. Every little detail will be exactly the way that you, you, uh, you set everything. With the modular, you can't hold on to anything. Um, you're never going to retrieve every, anything back that you set up. It was all done by hand, and there's so many different variations between, because everything is connected with patch cables, you're using basically electricity, control voltages to make all the connections to the module. So you're already working with very or, an organic <laughs> um, substance to begin with, and it's kind of like, uh, I always refer to it to this like, um, it's almost like a floating entity in the wires. It's like mm -hmm. this, this, this thing that you capture. Because when you get into a patch that's so dense and complex, it becomes almost something else at some point where you're like, it's, it's beyond what you've created. It turns into something really, really special. And those, those are the situations that I really store and I went for even on my last, um, my last full-length album. Those were yeah. kind of like how I was trying to capture these really surreal um, patches that just were blowing my mind. It's like, wow, this has turned into something that's beyond me. I must record this. I have to multi-track record this. And uh, there's no other instrument that I've ever used that that does that. Yeah, if that means anything, I've never had an instrument that it could almost take a life of its own. You set it up and you get it to a point, and the and the patch and the complexities and all the variances that are happening. It, compl it completely turns into its own ecosystem and you kind of just stand back and look at this like thing that you've created and then it starts just like generatively moving and dynamically shifting on its own and you're kind of like curating it sort of in a way and you're kind of like the, the overseeing it and kind of making you know overall adjustments and then you're recording this this entity that you've created in this one moment in time that's and after you pull the cables it's gone forever yeah, there's such a sense of euphoria when you're in the flow. You're in the flow when you're doing these things, you know? It's coming to you Absolutely. and you're just letting it flow. I'm mad at you, by the way. I don't know if I told you or not. <laughs> I am. I'm really mad at you. I, <laughs> when I was looking at your work, I, I immediately went to buy Cystic Vinyl because I love vinyl. And it's yes. not even out yet. And it's already yeah. sold out. So I am officially, I'm telling everybody listening, I'm very mad that I could not buy that album. I do hope you have a second pressing. Yes. Yes, we are. Yeah, we've. I'll put a pre-order in now for the second pressing. Talk to me about Cystic Vinyl and what was involved in making this album. Yeah, so this record, um, Cystic was a very different record. This is actually the record that was never meant to be released. This was a a collection. Well, actually, it was a recording of a live show, my live show that I was going to play in this year. Um, I was only able to play this set out twice. Um, one uh, show in L.A., and then I also opened up playing for Dan Deacon. It was here in Atlanta at Variety Playhouse. And we mm -hmm. played out, I think it was like a sold out show, probably around a little over 2000 people at the show. And that was the last time I played this set before COVID-19 had shut everything down uh, in America. So unfortunately, yeah, I didn't get to play this, the show on anymore. And, and I was just basically, I moved on to other things. I was like, okay, you know what? I've got all this other sound design work. I'm, you know, no big deal. I just keep going on. Uh, and a friend of mine 
who threw the party in LA was like, Hey, what are you doing with that live show that you played in LA? That show is just really crazy. And I was like, well, I mean, those, those sequences and stuff are all still in the machines. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I don't know when I'm going to do it. Who knows when we'll go back to playing shows when I'll be able to play that set out again. And he had made a, a suggestion saying that maybe we should release that as a record this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it dawned on me. I was like, right, well, that might be a cool idea. I've never really mm-hmm. thought to release a live perform set. So I basically put all the machines back together that um, for, for my live show. And then I, what I did was I did a multi-track recording of the set. I just basically played the whole live show in my studio and recorded it live in one take. It was like 46 minutes, I think. And that was about four there's four songs that got edited into different parts, but there really is like more like 10 songs in those four songs, but they were more like edited together in like a DJ style mix because I did everything live. The record really came out, yeah, by accident. Now it these was... are, are these analog samples that you used? Yes. Yeah, so this, okay. this record was all hardware. There was no computer involved other than just at the end, recording the tracks in the computer and, and editing and cutting the tracks up so they could be cut to vinyl. The record itself was made with um, a TR8 Roland drum machine, two Roland TB303s that were modified. And these are old. These were made in the 1980s. So I'm using some, for the main part of the sounds, we're looking at some very old vintage analog synthesizers. And then I used a very small 70 modular system and the modular is uh that i use for this is is no bigger than what i could it's like a small suitcase style modular so the concept was okay look i'm going to just limit this record to just only what i could take on an airplane with me to play a gig a live show i don't want to use any other stuff on this um like i did my previous record sort lay was it was using pretty much everything underneath the sun in the studio I really wanted to limit the tools that I use as if it was just as if I was just playing the live show for people. So, um, you know, everything really had to fit on a, in a backpack or be taken on an airplane um, to play at a, at a festival. You know, I couldn't bring like all the stuff that I would normally have. I wanted to just have the, the actual limitations of only being able to use these tools and seeing how far I could push this setup for a live show. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very cool exercise for me, and it, it created this very interesting concept that was completely different than my last record, which was, like I said, I used everything um, that I had possible here to put my last album together, which sounds very different than the Cystic EP. And the Cystic EP, like I said, is, is just, you know, really four or five pieces of equipment and a couple of effects pedals, very, very small tool set, which created a, a very different sound and headspace than my record before and 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 that was part of the intention it's like i wanted to just you know what if i change the tools what if i just set up what if i change the intent of what the whole concept is behind the tracks um you know in in in, instead of just read you know doing the same old thing i really just wanted to step outside and do something completely different for this next release where do people go to not be able to buy cystic vinyl (laughs) (laughs) i told you i am mad at you You (laughs) but they can hear it on uh over at Bandcamp or soundcloud right can you tell us where to go and what what yeah okay my name is just richarddevine.bandcamp.com. So if you go to that web link, it'll take you to our main page. And we have uh, we also have merchandise there. We just opened up a merch store with hoodies and T-shirts, which 
many fans have been asking about for for many years. We finally got around to doing it. That's great. Yeah, so the um, Cystic EP is now up there. There's one track that you can listen to right now. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, I think it's, yeah, Sinsker is the one up. It's quite a long track, 13 minutes, but it's uh, quite a journey into abstract analog, the analog acid sound. And I guess a little going back in history about this, the, the sound of this record is uh, um, I was kind of, attempting to make a style of music that I haven't made in over 25 years. And it's a early like acid techno, acid house, early electronic acid stuff. Uh, mainly the sound is focused around this machine called the TB303 by Roland. So it's a baseline computer controlled synthesizer that was originally designed to create baselines for guitar players that were traveling doing live shows. And it was a failed instrument by Roland. I think I, I think it was only in production for a couple of years before they discontinued it. Hmm. But no one knew that it would be a hit later on in electronic music, where it re- got reintroduced again to um, early Chicago acid house music. And the techno acid techno scene in the in the late '90s adopted this machine, and it became one of the biggest. It created an entire new genre of music just the machine itself. And that was what was defined as acid music. Um, and so as I was growing up in the early 90s, I was heavily influenced by the sound, grew up and uh, was able to luckily get these machines and make music with these early Roland uh, baseline synthesizers. And I made a lot of early recordings of these tracks and love the sound of it i just don't know what it was it was something about it it just spoke to me at the time and i just thought how how cool would it be just to revisit that sound because that sound is actually now have made it's been making a comeback more recently uh with the newer generations of kids that are discovering that music mm-hmm. now it's kind of now coming back again you know me as a 45 year old 20 years ago <laughs> it was fresh and interesting then but it, i thought it was just so interesting that it's made a comeback and there's all these newer generations of kids now discovering this music and now trying to make their interpretation of that style of music now i love it and i love that people going back to vinyl i was listening to it and the phrase that came to mind was organic acid <laughs> You don't have to do drugs to enjoy the benefits. Just listen to the music, right? Totally. You put the nail right on the head. It's perfect. This was also, you know, saying, it's like, what if I tried to recreate music today using a different mindset, a different set of tools, see what would happen? Where would it take me? What would, what would the outcome be? You know, what, you know, what it would be good? Would it be bad? What, what, you know, could I do something that would be, hold people's attention to to it has some you know a connection to a style of music that was made 25 years ago but sort of reinventing a new thing with it mm-hmm. yeah it was such an interesting concept to go revisit and explore and it turned into this whole new thing that you know i even i didn't see it going in this direction and it really really worked out and and it, as far as the whole record i'm really really pleased with how it turned out it turned out to be a really, really fun release. So far, we've gotten really, really positive feedback from just a single track that we've released. Your last album, Sort Lave, took you six years to make, right? 
That's correct. Yes. So how was that process different from what you just accomplished with cystic vinyl? That record, Sort Lay, was a, a very long process to get to where I was happy to create and release those collection of tracks out into the world. Prior to that, I'd made another album called Risk that came out in 2012, which was kind of like the first chapter of me exploring and revisiting modular synthesizers as uh, as a tool um, to make uh, you know an album with and that record was sort of like me just getting my toes back into dipping my toes back into the modular world and then i spent like i said it was about 6 years building up these systems and testing these systems and i wanted to to get things to a point to where i could write music very quickly but not just write any old music. I wanted to write music that I was happy with. It was it, it was coming out at a specific quality and level that was, you know, something that I could maybe sit down in one night, patch up something, and then a couple hours later be ready to multi-track record it and, and be good to go with it. So to get to that point, it took me a very long time to build the systems that I have here. So I started building out a few cases of stuff, which were just empty at the time. And then I, with the Eurorack modular system, you basically design and build out your own custom system. So you start out, like I said, with an empty case, and then you have to figure out what you want to what you want to do. Like, what are you gonna? What are your sound sources going to be? Your 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 effects section, your manipulation, your sequencers. Like all of that has to be planned out before you even build anything. And that, to me, was the part that took the longest. I had to figure out first how I was going to build the systems, how then was I going to use the systems and figure out the creative workflow to where the the ultimate goal for me was to figure, it was to make sure that I was able to write music on these machines and multi-track record with these machines, um, you know, recording these, these, these sessions or these tracks or compositions, patches, whatever you want to call them, um, and then fleshing them out into pieces of music that other people could experience. So that that was the that's what took so long was trying to figure out, you know, the process, how the process was going to be captured, how I was going to perform each in, interact with these machines, how the flow and the and the the order and um, just basically the systematic process of how I was going to, to approach working with them and recording with them. That's what really took me the longest. And um, that's what Sort Lave became was those experiments and those tracks I, I created with, with these machines. And that record to me came out really just, just crazy. Yeah, I was, I was really happy with the outcome of that. Um, and it was the first record also where I didn't use the computer as the sequencer. I was actually just recording everything back into the computers, just like a tape recorder. You were using the ARP 2600, right? At that time or not? I, I used the ARP. Yeah, I used the ARP quite a bit on, on that record. I used uh, two G2 Nord modulars. I used, uh, man, 14, 15 cases of Eurorack modular. Um, and the big, huge modular that a lot of people see with all the blinking lights, that was, that was, you know, 80, 90% of used on that record as well. Um, it was a lot of modular stuff that I hooked up together and he used multiple systems that I patched into each other. So they would all be linked together, sharing the same clock. And so like the first, maybe first two systems I'd have on the floor, I would start out the first part of the track and then like three or four minutes in. 
there would be two other cases that I would have that also would be sharing this lock linked up to those first two cases that would play maybe the third or fourth minute of that composition. So each system would play its own part in the piece of music at a specific time. So the compositions, if you listen to the tracks on that album, they start at one point, but they end up at some completely different place by the end of the song. Um, so I was, had a lot of people ask me why the music mutates and evolves and changes is because it was just by the nature of the design of the way I had everything set up. And um, it really helped influence and change the flow, the writing flow and the way that I wanted everything to, to move through each piece. So it was really fun. Yeah, it was a really fun exercise to experiment with, not working to a timeline, not working to a computer screen, not working with the mouse, just, it's almost like you're working with clay. You have like two hands, you're shaping the sound, you're doing it all by hand and you're just teasing your ears. And you're not dictating, things are not, being dictated by what you see on a screen by looking at a timeline, you know? My brain just went to Julie Andrews at the top of the hill. (laughs) (laughs) Singing the hills are alive. (laughs) Totally different kind of music, but that freedom of expression. I'm so excited. You just let yourself do that. And I think that's why you just don't stop because it Mm -hmm. feels like from my vantage point, this is a very joyous process for you, although it is a lot of work. And I admire all the work you put into it every day. What's next for you? Are you going to be more and more involved using AI or machine learning? How do you feel about all of that? I see. That's interesting. That's an area that I've been exploring quite a bit lately with generative instruments. And I've been getting actually quite, quite heavily into live coding lately as well. That's been a new side um, experiment where I'm sequencing in real time using live code. Um, and most recently, I've been exploring this environment called Tidal Cycles, which is uh, based on the Haskell programming language. And mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of really interesting sequencing, generative ex- experiments using that environment. And now I'm starting to use that with the modular and bridging both the computer coded world with the modular organic world. And that's coming up with some just extremely wild stuff. And that's kind of where I want to head for the next record. I'm working on after this is going to be exploring AI-based machine learning environments um, and live coding um, to see where all this can go with hardware and computers. The machine learning stuff has been really interesting because I've been using that stuff for, uh, since I left Google, I got really interested in machine learning. When I met Doug Eck there, who's in charge of the Magenta project. Uh, they use TensorFlow and he's got a bunch of AI machine learning based tools there. They have actually a page too if you guys want to do a search. Um, he's got all his, uh, all his research and everything is up online to see. And they have some free tools as well there. Can you tell us where that is? Or do we just search um, for Magenta Google? Yeah, it's okay. Magenta Google. It should just pop right up in okay. um, any search. Um, but they have some Max for Live objects there. There's some Max for Live plugins that you that are free to download as well. That kind of touch upon these these um, these terms of taking musical information, interpreting it, and then generating new musical information based off what you feed the algorithm, which is a very interesting idea for me because I'm looking for ways to manipulate musical data, whether that's rhythmic, um, percussive sequencing data or are we talking about, you know, musical scales and chords and gender arpeggiations and those just, there's so many interesting ways of 
of taking this data and repurposing it to do something different with it. Or you could replicate and uh, create new versions of, of songs. There's, there's such a, right now it's an interesting time because a lot of this stuff is just starting to surface. And not only with just music composition, but also sound design. I worked on my first machine learning sound design project with Yamaha on the montage synthesizer with their new smart uh, smart work technology, which was the 3.5 firmware that was just released. I was asked to create the FM-based uh, patches for this, the FMX engine, which lies inside the montage synthesizer. And this new machine learning-based um, algorithm that they've added into the firmware, it, what it does is it can analyze, say you pick like eight or five of your favorite patches inside the montage. It'll analyze those patches and then it maps 1,024 different variations of those patches into a graphical-based uh, touchscreen field where you have these different regions that shows all of the different outcomes. And you could just simply with your finger touch the screen and scroll through and hear all of these different variations of those patches. So it's almost like um, it's, it's a very, very interesting uh, concept for coming up with new sounds. My brain is exploding. I'm picturing scrolling through all of that. And I'm just going, what? It's, it's really wild. Yeah, some of the stuff that I've gotten with it is just really, really interesting. And this is just the very beginning. We're just starting to see this technology coming into a lot of these virtual hardware and software-based instruments. And, you know, I, I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon. <laughs> but it's a cool thing. I th I'm looking at it as a, from a creator standpoint. This is, this is a dream come true. Even me being a sound designer and a patch programmer for um, these synths, like, sometimes I'll look at what the machine learning algorithm did. And I was like, wow, what did it do to get this sound? I could go back and like, I could look at the architecture of what it all created and be like, oh, that's what it did do that. So it's, it's been very helpful for me and helped me become even better at making newer sounds just, just because it can create so many cool things so quickly that maybe I don't have the time to program or I just didn't think to even approach the patching from that point of view. So it's been very um, beneficial for me to study and analyze and use it as a tool um, going forward now with my work. And I'm, I'm hoping to create newer tools that are in the same model for my music creation process going further, whether that's creating new sounds, um, you know, for other patches in my other synthesizers, or just for compositional purposes, creating new, you know, gestures and sequences and motifs that would lie within the music composition um, that I could manipulate, or I could create even new, you know, newer versions of, of existing data that I've created. So it's this really, like, interesting cycle of recycling old musical data into new musical data um, and then manipulating that music, musical data into some new music pieces. Well, this is like being on the downslope of the roller coaster and you're moving really, really fast. <laughs> Talking to you is like somebody handed me the A ticket to get to Disney, right? <laughs> I mean, I love the combination of everything that you do. I can't even describe how wonderful it is to talk to somebody who's that creative and loves what they do. You know, that wonderful balance between having a personal life and a family life and also all this energy that goes into your work, creating a great space to work and making these beautiful sounds and beautiful music for us. 
So where do you want people to go to learn more about you, Richard? They could go to any one of the places. I'm on social media, Instagram, Twitter, I have a Facebook fan page. I think that's where pretty much 90% of my fan base and people mm-hmm. that follow me are hanging out these days. Um, okay. If not, I'm usually on Bandcamp. So go to Bandcamp, Google Richard Devine, and you'll see him on all the social media channels. And you're making me hungry because I know you're going out to dinner. so enjoy the time with your family Richard and thanks so much for spending the time with your fan family today we appreciate it and it's really nice to know more about you and we're going to be stalking you because I want to find out what you're going to do with all this new stuff that you're learning and and, uh, implementing in your current work so have a wonderful time and everybody listen to what I always tell you get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today That was Richard Devine, musician, producer, sound designer, and performer, spending time with us on OWC Radio. And this is Serena Catania. I'm signing off.